I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me all my days. I've been held by your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my hand, I will sing of the goodness of God. Sing all my life, all my life you have been so, so good, and every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God, all my life, and all my life you have been so, so good, with every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice, you have led me through the fire. Darkest night, you're close like no other. I've known you, I've known you as a father, I've known you as a friend, and I have lived in the goodness of God. And all my life, you have. is running after your goodness is running after it's running after me your goodness is running after it's running after me with my life laid down I surrender now I give you everything your goodness is running after so, so good with every breath 
goodness of God. One more time, all my life. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I will sing of the goodness of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. If you will, this morning, open your Bible with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Hallelujah. 1 Samuel, chapter 13. I want to talk to you this morning about the key to living a full Christian life. The key to living a full Christian life. And there are many ways that you could describe a full Christian life. You could talk about a Christian life that is all the fullness of the new covenant relationship that God wants to give us. You could talk about a full Christian life in that you are experiencing all that God wants you to experience. But what I mean by full Christian life this morning is a fully committed, fully devoted Christian life. To not be halfway with God, to be with all of your heart, to be sincere, to not be trying to worship at the altar of the Lord and worship at the altar of other things, to not have a throne on your heart upon which you try to have Jesus sitting and other things sitting, having Jesus sit there and money sit there, or Jesus sitting there and approval of other people sitting there, or Jesus sitting there and entertainment being there, things that are good in themselves, but that compete with the authority and the leadership of God. Because how many of you know that we can take any good thing that God has made and turn it into an idol? Amen? Amen. How many of the great sins in the Word of God were simply taking a good thing that God made and turning it into something it wasn't supposed to be, and they corrupted the nature of a good thing and used it to sin against the Lord. Amen? How many examples do we have in the Word of God? And so I want to talk to you about the reason that we do that, the reason why our hearts are divided, and the reason why we don't obey the Lord in all of the things that we should be obeying the Lord in. And there can be many reasons for that. One of those could be that we don't understand the grace of God that gives us victory over the power of sin. That is one subject. But this morning, I want to talk to you about a heart that loves God above everything else and, in, and therefore is pursuing the heart of God above everything else in a way that sets a priority of your heart that says, if I have to choose between loving, obeying, and serving God and some other thing that wishes to take his place, then I'm going to choose to serve God. And this is so relevant and important for us because it has never been easier for idols to take the place of God in the hearts and lives of those who claim to follow the Lord. It has never been easier. And I'll tell you, if you study the Word of God, you know that it doesn't have to be easy to have a compromised heart. Amen? It can be an ideal situation for people to be following the Lord, and yet they'll still follow other things. Then how much more difficult is it when everything is primed in a culture and society around us to teach our heart to walk away from the Lord? How much more tempting is it? And so I want to speak to you this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 13. Second, or for, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 13. 13. Brother Lanny and Sister Janice, thank you all so much for having us this morning. It's a privilege to be with you. It's a privilege 
uh, to be with you all and to worship the Lord with you and serve Him with you and to study His Word with you this morning. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a privilege to be here. You know, I found out it takes a little bit longer to get here than uh, it does to uh, my church from my house. And I just, I didn't think about it this morning. I'm sitting there at 10 o'clock in my armchair reading my Bible, studying, and I'm thinking I'll be there about 10, 10, 10, 15. And then I get on the road and I'm about to leave. Brother Lanny calls me and he says, oh, we start at 10, 15. And I'm like, you told me that. You did. I should have remembered that. And then I start driving. I'm like, I think it's going to take a little longer to get here. I've been here a hundred times and yet I still, I just wasn't thinking about it. So hallelujah. If your life depends on somebody being on time, brother, call somebody else. If you need anything in the world, I will do it for you. You can call me at 3 a.m. and I'll drive through your hours to bring you a can of gas, but you might have to wait <laughs> a little bit. Hallelujah. First Samuel chapter 13. And we're going to read verses 13 and 14, and then we'll read the whole, the whole passage for context. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and 14. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. As we study this passage, the main thrust of it is the idea of a man or a person after God's own heart. And the distinction here is set that this is what David is and this is not what Saul is. Amen? That's the contrast. God saying, I chose you. I chose you by grace. I had a plan to use your life and I want to minister through you and to you, to my people, but I've given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and you have revealed to me that your heart is not after the Lord. You don't want me. You want my hand. You want my help. You want my blessing. You want my provision. But at the end of the day, I am simply a means to your end. But there's a man who the end for him is me. I'm not a means to him. I'm not a tool for him to get what he wants. What he wants is me. And what he's chasing after is my heart. And the distinction is you didn't obey me because the implication is you're not after my heart. You're after your life. You're after your priorities and your goals, but David will obey me and keep my commands. Why? Because he's a perfect man? Ha ha, right? I mean, let's all laugh. I mean, we can look at the, the stories of David's life and say, isn't it a miracle that God would use a man like that? Amen? Amen. Praise God. So obviously it's not he's perfect and you're not perfect. No, he's going to make more mistakes than you ever did, Saul. He's not going to do things perfectly, but the distinction is he wants to obey me. He wants to be faithful to me. He wants to serve me. And when I show him that his heart's wrong, he'll repent. But over and over, you will not because the greatest desire of your heart is not me. It's for other things. And so I want to talk to you this morning about that distinction between having a heart that's after God and a heart that's after other things and somewhere God will fit in. Amen. Let's pray this morning. God Almighty, we ask you to help us to see your word, to understand your word. Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that our life might be transformed and informed by the power of your word. That we would no longer walk after our ways, but the ways of the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. We'll start reading in verse 2, and this is quite a lengthy story. There's a lot of detail in it, but we'll read it to understand the contrast and the way that the circumstances of Saul's life show his heart and how the circumstances of David's life shows his heart. Look at verse 2. 
It says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan, his son, defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Verse 4. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to, eat to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel, the prophet, did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done Foolishly, You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince or ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so just to kind of recap and help you understand the situation. Who is King Saul? If you'll remember, he was the first king over Israel. And so all of this time, from the time that God had brought the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years, Moses ruled over the people as prophet and judge. And then, Sam, uh, then Joshua took his place as prophet and judge, leading the people. But there was no king. And then for hundreds of years, if you study the book of Judges, you'll find that God chose to use these judges. He would raise them up as leaders. He would raise them up uh, as military leaders and deliverers who would save Israel out of their trouble. But the constant circumstance was that when they served God together with one heart, God blessed them, God prophesied. Uh, prof, uh, profited them, and God helped them in every situation that they found themselves in. But always, as soon as they were blessed, as soon as they got a little money, they got a little grain, they got a little comfort, they got a little success, then they began to worship idols. They began to serve other things. They began to live for other things, and judgment would fall on them. Consequences would fall on them, and so God would raise up another judge. But we get to the story in Samuel where the people get sort of fed up and they say the nations around them have kings. They have kings that rule over them. We want a king. 
And God says, but if you have a king, he's going to do what governments always do. They're going to tax you to death. They're going to take your sons to serve in the army. They're going to take your daughters and make them work and, and provide food for the armies. And they're, they're just going to be a burden to you. Your government, your nation is not big enough. Keep following me. Keep serving me. Keep walking with me. And eventually you'll be ready to have a king. But now you're not ready. I'll be king over you. I'll rule over you through my prophets. And they say, no, that won't do anymore. We don't want those anymore. We want a king. Give us a king. And so Samuel grieves over this and mourns over this. And he says, uh, you know, he's frustrated with them. And then God speaks to him. He says, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. I was leading them. I was governing them. But they wanted somebody they could see. They wanted somebody they could put their faith in and their trust in. They wanted something to latch on to and say, this is what we believe is going to help us and deliver us. And they didn't want that to be me anymore. And so God chooses Saul. Amen? Amen. God chooses Saul. He's a weak man. He's a poor man. He's of a small tribe of a small family in a small house. He's not a wealthy man. He's not popular. Nobody knows him. Uh, I mean, he's running errands, right? His, his donkey gets loose from his father's house, and his father sends him out to go look for it. I mean, this is a grown man out there looking for an animal. This is not a ruler. This is not someone who's popular in his town. He's out there looking for his donkey, right? I mean, this is just a small errand. He's not responsible for anybody else. He's just running his daddy's house. And God says, I'm going to choose that small man, that weak man, that imperfect man, and I'm going to call him. And he's going to give him a new heart. He's going to anoint him. He's going to put the spirit of God on him. And God is going to begin using this weak vessel because that is always the pattern of God, isn't it? God says, I don't choose you because you're mighty and worthy. I choose you because you're weak and you're small. And when I work through your life, it will be a witness to everyone that I'm at work in you because God will see what you did and say, surely they didn't do that, right? And so praise God, God must be at work. And over and over again, God blesses the work of Saul. God moves through the hands of Saul. God gives deliverance. God gives power. God gives provision. God even gives prophetic insight through Saul's life. And so Saul has had consistent witness, consistent witness that God will come through. God will help him. God is working on his behalf and he should trust God. And every time God gives him a word through Samuel, and he says, this is what God tells you to do, and he allows it to test his faith every time he fails. Every time he fails. He fails when he goes to fight uh, the, the king, and, and God says, you're to, I forget the name of the kingdom, but uh, to fight this king, I think it's in chapter uh, 11. I'll just might as well just turn there and look at it real quick. The Ammonites, the king of the Ammonites. And so he's to go and to fight and he says, God says to judge this kingdom because they are so evil, so wrong. You're to kill the king, kill all the livestock, all the animals. Don't save any of it for yourselves. And then Samuel sends him off. Go obey. I give you the word. I tell you what to do. And then I send you out with the word of God ringing in your ears and the promise that God will help you. Go out and do what God says and trust God to bless you. And then he leaves him and he says, you're accountable, you go do it. He goes out, he gets the victory, God works through his hands. But then when Samuel comes, he says, wait a minute, why do I hear the cattle lowing? Why do I hear the sheep uh, making their noise? Why do I hear all these animals? Did you save the animals? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of animals and the people are hungry. We were going to offer them to God as a sacrifice. We save the king because we want to be able to boast that we've got a king that's a captive and, and we've, we're ruling over him and we think that he'll be useful. And so the, these are the wisdoms that I have, God, and I know what you told me to do, but, but I think that it would work better if we do it this way. And so Samuel has to speak to him and he says, obedience is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is like the sin 
of witchcraft because what witchcraft is is trying to manipulate spiritual powers to get the things that you want. And he says, I am at work in your life to do good things and yet you're trying to force me to go along with your way, Saul. You want God to just be in your pocket and say, this is your program, Saul. You tell me how you want it run and I'll show up and provide the power, the help, the blessing, the provision, and the victory and I'll do it your way. And he says, that's not how it works, Saul. You're not trusting, you're not obeying the Lord. And so God gives him yet another test. God says to him through Samuel, you're to go be at this place and wait. And in seven days, Samuel will come and make offerings to the Lord and worship the Lord. And I will be with you and I will help you. And Saul waits one day and two days and three days and four days and five days and six days. And on the seventh day, he goes, I just can't wait any longer. I'm afraid. People are leaving. People are scared. People are running. My resources are running. The people that are going to help me fight this battle are running. And I'm afraid. And we've got to be able to fight. And I can't wait for God's word to come true. I've got to do it my way. And so what does he say? He says in verse 8, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. See what's happening? I know what God said, but I see what's happening, and I'm getting nervous. I'm getting afraid. I'm getting scared. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. In other words, he was just hours away, hours away from what God told him was going to happen was actually going to come to pass. It was actually of no more tactical benefit for him to do it then than it was just a few hours later. But he couldn't wait. He couldn't trust. He couldn't expect that God was going to come through and do what he said. And so I'm scared. People are leaving. I'm worried that we're going to lose this fight. And so at the very last minute, I'm just going to go, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. And so let's see what he did. In verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul, Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that they did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. Notice all the things that he says. I saw this and I saw that and I saw this and I saw that. Well, what did God say to you? I know, I know what God said, but I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. And I'm tallying up all the reasons why God's word isn't true. I'm tallying up all the reasons that God's word is inconvenient, why God's word is hard, why God's word will not work and it is not sufficient, and all the reasons that I shouldn't have to obey God's word. All of these are reasons that I should be able to ignore what God said and do it my way. Can we pretend that we don't do this? Can we pretend? I can't pretend. I can't pretend that I don't read texts in the Bible and go, amen, that seems reasonable and godly and wise, praise God. And then a time comes where I have to live by that word and go, yeah, but, and, you know, and what happens is when you go to Bible college, it doesn't mean you become more spiritual. What it means is you develop more knowledge of the Bible that if you want to, you can go, well, according to this text and that verse, maybe I don't really have to believe that or do that. And, and you can reason yourself out of it. And that's what happens is when you read the Word of God, it's, it's a good thing to know the Word of God, but all of that knowledge can accumulate into a tool that you use to excuse yourself. Your flesh is very subtle. Amen? Your flesh is very subtle. It can manipulate the Word of God. It can manipulate your thoughts, your feelings. You can just find a way to make the Word of God say what you want to say. He says, I see this, I see that, I see all of these reasons why I shouldn't have to do what God said, why it's inconvenient. He says in verse 12, and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. This is, this is Saul's goal. Did you hear that? We'll read it again, verse 12. He says, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. 
This is the purpose of the offering, of the sacrifice. It's, to, it's a, an act of faith and an act of worship. And say, Lord, you are worthy of praise and honor and thanksgiving, and we make an appeal to you for your help. We honor you as our God, and here we are in need of your help, and we're asking you to help us. Give us victory, give us uh, strength, give us wisdom, give us tactical, tactical advantage. Do a miracle on our behalf. Help us to win. That's what he's asking. We're asking God to help us. But he is seeking the favor of the Lord in disobedience to the word of the Lord. Because his greatest goal is not to serve and obey God and do what pleases God. He does not view the kingdom as God's kingdom that God has made him a steward of. He sees the kingdom as his kingdom and the people as his people and the victory as his victory or the victory as his loss. And he wants things to go a certain way and I'm asking God to help me do it. How many times do we say... God, here is my will, here are my decisions, here are the things I want to do, I'm asking you to help me do it. And God says, here is my will, and here is my word, and here are the things that I want you to do. And you go, I don't want to do that, that seems hard, that seems inconvenient, that is not helpful. Can you go along with my plan? My ways are better than your ways, my thoughts are better than your thoughts, and all I need you to do is be the one to make my ways work. This is, this is what Saul is asking. I don't want to wait. Waiting looks foolish to me. You said wait seven days, I waited six and a half. I waited almost the full amount of time, and I don't expect that you're going to come through. I don't know where Samuel is. I can't keep waiting, and so I'm going to do it my way and hope that you bless it. This is what we do. This is, this is the temptation for us. I can't pretend that this isn't what I am tempted to do. I can't pretend that. I'm not going to sit here. I have a friend that used to say this. He said, I spot it because I got it. Right, So he was a former drug addict, an alcoholic, and you could just be standing in Walmart. And he could look at someone that nobody else would think anything, and he could say, that guy's an alcoholic. That guy's a drug addict. And I'm like, how do you know that? And he's like, I spot it because I got it. I, I can see that he's in withdrawals. I can see that he's anxious. Whatever that body language was, whatever the way that he talked or behaved, that he said, I recognize that. I know that because that's what I've done myself. And since then, I've spent a lot of time thinking and praying and seeking the Lord. And I wonder how many times is it that I think it's the discernment of the Lord that I recognize sin or things in people. And really, I go, is it more that I spot it because I got it? That I can see it in them because I've seen it in me? That I can see that imagination, that motive, that pride, that vanity, whatever it is. And I can see it in them because I know that I myself have done it. And so this isn't something that you terrible people maybe are tempted to do. And I'm up here ascending from the clouds to go. I'm letting you know that you may be tempted with this. I'm telling us that this is the problem that we all face. And it's deceptive because isn't this covered in religious behavior? Didn't, didn't Saul look mighty spiritual? I'm offering a sacrifice to the Lord. I am worshiping the Lord. Surely it was filled with songs. It was, sing with, it was filled with priests. It was filled with all the people gathering together and they did everything according to the pattern. It looks holy. It looks godly. It looks spiritual. But I'm wanting God to be the puppet that comes along with my plan. Saul did this knowing that it was wrong. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 12, the last sentence. He says, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. My heart restrained me. It pulled at me. My conscience gnawed at me. Don't do it. You can't afford it. You know that this is what God said you ought not to do. But his flesh has got an itch. How many of us get an itch? You know, it's what we call impulse buying, right? Impulse decisions. I really wanted that car and I'm not concerned about my budget. I'm going to go down there and they offered me a low interest rate and all these things. You can afford the payment. You deserve it. And you're like, you know what? I do deserve it. I've worked hard and I'm tired. And, you, and then you sign on the dotted line. You get into something that you can't afford and then you live with it for years. 
I've seen people do it with marriages. I've seen them do it with money. I've seen them do it with work. I've seen it. Seen them do it with all kinds. I've got an itch. I want to. I want to. I just can't stand it anymore until I can scratch that itch. And Saul said, I had an itch and I forced myself. I pushed myself against my conscience to do what I knew that I shouldn't do. I can't even say anything about seeing it in other people. I've seen it in myself. I've done it myself. And verse 13 says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. Listen to these words. Listen how often the word command or commandment is mentioned. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom for, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so why is he losing his position? Why is God judging him? Why is there a consequence? Why? Because he didn't obey God. He didn't keep what the Lord commanded. But is the emphasis here that we all need to go out and keep the commandments of the Lord and make sure that we're obeying? It is that is considered a byproduct of the other thing. The specific thing that he points out is this. What is the difference between David and Saul? He says, I've commanded him, David, to be prince over his people. But the distinction is not that David has been given a command because Saul was given a command. The distinction is the character of David's heart. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Why is this a distinction? Well, let's first consider what is, what is the notion, what is the suggestion that he says he's after his own heart? You know, we can use the Bible in our colloquial language so much because our Western culture has been so inundated with Scripture that we use language from Scripture not even realizing it. And eventually, the way that we use it is different than the way that Scripture implied it. The way that we use, you know, after my own heart is typically someone that does something that I like, right? So uh, I, I might go to, uh, you know, someone's house and they cook a crawfish etouffee and I eat it and I'm like, oh, after my heart, right? I mean, they, I just, they, they do something that I really like. It's something that they do. The person after my own heart, they pull up with a nice four-wheel drive, lifted truck, whatever it is that I like, whatever it is that you like. And we say, oh, they're after my heart. And what we mean by that is simply they do something that we happen to like. But the language here says that David is a man after God's heart. In other words, it's not coincidental, right? The way that you might cook food in a way that I like and you go, oh, what a coincidence. This is really the way that I like it. It is intentional. It is personal. He says, David is seeking my heart. He's looking for my heart. He is chasing my heart. David wants my heart and he is in pursuit of it. The heart of a person is the seat of their emotions, their feelings, and it is often the place that is described where their priorities are, where the things that they love are, where the things that they care about are, right? You would say of your children, maybe my children are at the center of my heart, right? You would say these are things that really mean something to me. They're the things that I care about, the things that I want, the things that I love. They are the most important things to me. They are my priority. They are my priority. You can have other things mentally that you think are, well, this is a priority for you. But how many of you are diligent in your job, but if a better opportunity came tomorrow, you would go somewhere else? You don't love the job for the job's sake. You love the job because it provides a need for you. And so the job is not at the center of your heart. You're giving it your attention. You're giving it your devotion. You're working hard, but you don't really love the job. You need the job. But your heart is those things that you say, man, no matter what, that's what I'm committed to right? It's easy to love your children when they're small. What about when they're older? What about when they're rebellious? What about when they're foolish? What about when they're doing things that you know are bad for them and you have much less reasons, selfish reasons to care about them? 
But it doesn't matter that it's inconvenient. It doesn't matter that maybe you've had to go post bail for them. It doesn't matter that they've wrecked a car twice because they won't stop texting and driving. It doesn't matter that they keep making poor decisions that you don't like and maybe you discipline them. But still, at the very core of your heart, there are those children that you say, I love them above anything else in the world. Maybe I'm making decisions that won't help them to keep doing the foolish things they're doing. Maybe I'm not able to be around them or have them around my house because they would negatively influence my other children. But it doesn't matter what they've done. They're still at the center of my heart. I have met mothers whose sons are on death row because they killed someone. And they hate the thing that they did, but still at the very core of their heart is that child because at the end of the day, they're still their child. That is your heart. It is the things that mean the most to you, the things that you've loved, the things that you've prioritized, and you said, this is the most important thing in the world to me. And God says of David, he so sees me and loves me as worthy of faith and obedience and worthy of all of his life and sacrifice that he's chasing after my heart. He wants to know what is my priority, what is my goal, what do I mourn over, what do I grieve over, what do I celebrate, what do I care about. And the cares of my heart are the cares of David. Yes. Amen? And so we see David show up when Goliath is there and he's threatening the people of Israel and he's defaming the name of the Lord and everybody else hears it as a threat against them. They're thinking, oh no, our kingdom, oh no, our nation, oh no, our fields, our money, our people. And David shows up and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that blasphemes the name of the Lord? The Lord is worthy of worship and honor and praise and his name ought to be honored. And here this person is defaming the name of the Lord and his heart is moved to say I can't let this continue because the greatest desire of his heart is that God would be honored he loves the Lord above every other thing and God says this is the heart of David and so he says David unlike Saul the the chief priority of Saul It's not the heart of the Lord, it's the hand of the Lord. Saying, Lord, I'm seeking your hand. I want your victory, I want your help, I want your power. How many of us, the priority of our heart is, I want God to heal my kids, I want God to bless my money, I want God to help me through the dark and the difficult times. I go to church and I pray and I ask God, help me, help me, help me. Make everything about me. You're a glorified bellboy bringing me all the things that I need. They seek his hand, but they don't seek his heart. And David says, whether I get his heart or not, whether I get his, whether I get his hand or not, I want his heart. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace? And the king asked him, who will deliver you out of my hand? I'm the king of the whole world. Babylon's ruling over all the nations in this part of the world. And there is none to save you from me. Who will save you? And they say, the Lord will save us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow the knee to you because our greatest goal is not his hand. It is his heart. And we will be faithful to God even if it means that we get thrown in the furnace and die because we want him, not what he can do. God says, this is where David is. He wants my hand. You'll see my hand. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to help him. But above everything that he wants, he wants me. And so God says, David is a man after his own heart. Listen to how this is described in Psalm 42. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. In Psalm 42, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. David says, I want the Lord. I'm yearning for the Lord. I care for the Lord. And the same way that a deer out in the Middle East could be in a place where there's hardly any water. And that deer has been walking through a desert and the hot places and the stony ground. And David was a man who lived in the field. And how many times did he see a deer wandering around, panting, ready to die, going, if I can just find some dew 
somewhere, if I can just find a stream somewhere. He's just yearning, going, I'm in a dry desert place and I'm looking for a place that I can just get some water. And David says, I know how that deer feels because what I'm craving, what I'm longing, what I'm yearning for is not victory. It's not deliverance. It's not things to get better in my life. Lord, I feel like there are things that are between me and you and I need you. And if I don't get you, I feel like I'm going to die. And so I'm panting after the Lord like streams of water. And so this comes because David had seen the Lord. David had known the Lord. And can I tell you, the great key to this is not us saying, well, I should want God like that. And so I'll muster it up and I'll try to make God the priority of my life. Well, welcome to failure, brother. You can get the t-shirt and the coffee cup. You'll have all of it because we don't just love God out of sheer will. We love God because we've seen his glory. And if we see God, we'll love him. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. I'm sure all of you know this passage, but it says this. We love God because he first loved us. This is the key of the Christian faith. It is not that we work and we labor and strive to be people who love God perfectly, but it is people who long and yearn to see God in a way that will inspire us and move us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and body. And it don't mean we'll never make mistakes, but when God shows us our sin, we'll repent and be broken. Amen. David made lots of mistakes, but oh man, you let Nathan come and show him the evil of his heart and say, you are the man. And David hits the dirt and sackcloth and ashes and mourns and grieves and says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Lord, help me to love you and serve you and obey you. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Then will I teach sinners your way. If you'll forgive me, if you'll help me, if you'll show me mercy and restore to me a heart that loves you, then I'll go to sinners that maybe David thought he was better than them all of his life. And now that he's seen his sin and how far he is from the Lord, he says, if you'll forgive me and change me, I'll go to those sinners and I'll say, I'm going to teach you to get rid of that sin. Look at the mercy of God. Look how he forgave me and loved me and washed me and he forgot my transgressions. This is the key of all worship. It is the key of all songs that we sing to the Lord. It is first that God loved us and then we loved him. Listen, consider the second verse of it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Lord, when my heart is tempted to roam and wander and I'm discouraged and I'm tempted to go after other things and maybe even sin to satisfy my heart, let me remember one thing that will keep me and guard me, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He has seen that I am weak. He's seen that I don't love him. He's seen that my heart will run after one idol, after another, after another, after another. And when one doesn't satisfy me, I'll go find another one. He's regarded my helpless estate, but then he shed his own blood for my soul. Consider how great thou art. When he says in the second verse, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. And then all people who have seen the Lord, that God has shown them his glory and his grace and his goodness, they long for the day when they will no longer have a veil between them and the Lord, but they get to see him face to face. And this is why all of the old songs and the old hymns crescendoed in the idea of the return of the Lord. Consider verse three of how great thou art, where he says, when Christ shall come with a shout of acclamation, 
proclamation. To take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Our greatest need is not that we would greater see the commandments of the Lord so that we would obey them. Our greatest need is that we would see the Lord and his glory and his grace and his mercy in a way that would make us so in love with the Lord that we would then pursue the commands of God and say, what do you want from me? What can I do to please you? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to make your heart happy? Because you are the greatest treasure of my life. And then we'll sing, then sings my soul, my Savior. God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Can we pray this morning? God Almighty, we ask you that you would come. Lord, that you would teach us to seek your face. Lord, to seek your heart. Lord, that we would seek to know you above all other things. That our hearts would not go after the things of the world or the things of the flesh. Lord, that we would not have a Christianity that says that God is simply a means to an end. That we would not have a Christianity that said that God is to help us. Jesus came to help us. Jesus died to help us. Jesus rose to help us. Jesus sits on the throne to help us, to do anything that we want him to do. Help us, Lord, to say, Lord, that God reigns in heaven and Jesus came to earth and Jesus died for us and he ascended to heaven, Lord, so that we could see that you are worthy of our worship and praise and to deliver us from idolatry and to turn our hearts to the living God and that the scene in heaven is not everybody being so happy with silver and gold and mansions, but people in love with the Lamb of God and people rejoicing and celebrating that they were forgiven by the King of kings and the Lord of lords for their rebellion. People who fall down around the throne and they say, worthy, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lamb that was slain. Teach our hearts to love you above everything else and to serve you above everything else because you are worthy. Let us be people who are after your heart. Lord, help us, God. And when we see that that's not who we are, Lord, help us to see that what we need is a fresh revelation of the grace of God to see you, to know you, to love you, and God, to pour out all of our worship and faith to you in Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah.